Welcome back to another episode of Food and Conversation. I'm super excited this afternoon to welcome my next guest. Dr. Janice Forsyth is a member of the Fisher River Cree First Nation, is an award-winning scholar whose research, service, and advocacy focus on Indigenous sport development here in Canada. Her work combines history and sociology to explore the relationships between sport and culture from Indigenous points of view. Her work has also informed policy and program development across sectors, different sectors including youth, community development, justice, education, citizenship, and health, in addition to sport and physical activity. She's also the co-editor of Aboriginal Peoples and Sports in Canada, Historical Foundations and uh, Contemporary Issues. And uh, this is not so recent, but uh, your book, uh, Reclaiming Tom Longboat, uh, Indigenous Self-Determination in Canada Sport. And uh, she now works and lives in Vancouver at uh, the University of British Columbia within the Faculty of Education and the School of Human Kinesiology. So welcome, Janice, to uh, Fukin Conversation. How are you doing? Not too bad. Thanks, Nicholas. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you this afternoon for several different reasons. I don't know. The first is, is like, you know, I've been following your work. And of course, I know you from a long, long time ago when we were both going to school in Northern Ontario in Treaty 9. Well, fortunate enough, at least I was, to be part of an amazing badminton club and, and yeah. uh, clubs in, in Northern Ontario. And, and then I would periodically see you when I was playing for the University of Ottawa's badminton team. I think at the time, I'm trying to recall which university. Was it Western that you played for in terms of badminton? But I also know you did track and field. So I'm trying to put those together when I was thinking before we got together to speak today. Yeah. Yeah, I started out with badminton at Western University, and I played on the varsity team here, and uh, at some point in time, switched over to running and joined their cross-country and track and field teams, and it was it was too much, so I had to stop playing badminton and focus on running. Oh, wow. And I always remembered, so I was trying to also make sense as well, uh, because at the time, one, we immigrated to Canada in 75 and then moved up to Capscasing, where my dad had a family practice. But we never referred to our lived experiences or where we're living or took it up in the school curriculum, the concept of living in treaty relations in Treaty 9. And I don't know if that was necessarily the case for you in terms of your school experiences. And I was trying to put together because on your website, which is amazing, do uh, self-identify as being a member of Fisher River Cree First Nation. And growing up, I was never aware. I remember having lots of interactions with you in terms of uh, different badminton tournaments and clubs that, and also looked up to you as a role model, uh, but didn't didn't realize that you were a member of that First Nations community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fisher River is about two hours north of Winnipeg, and the sister community, Pegwis, um, is a, a couple of miles just away from it. And so, you know, a lot of my family also comes from uh, Pegwis, and. Uh, um, even before that, because uh, our family moved from the north side of Lake Winnipeg around the Norway House area down to the south side of Lake Winnipeg to, to where they are today. And because of circumstances of history having to do with the Indian Act and the residential school system, uh, my mom was sent away to live in the logging camps of northern Ontario when she was about nine years old. And because of that, she became disenfranchised from the community and that's how we came to be in Northern Ontario. And uh, I myself am what they call a Bill C-31 uh, Indian, uh, with my family having reclaimed our status um, in the early 1980s because we were 
involuntarily enfranchised because of having been sent away to avoid the residential school system. So yeah, I grew up in Timmins, uh, or at least I, I, I say Timmins is the place where I grew up because we, we did move around a lot. Okay. Yeah, but it's the one place where I spent the most time. And, and of course, that's how I came to know you. Yeah. <laughs> through <Bad> yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I do know that you did a lot of track and field then, like cross-country running and all of the different sports uh, while you were there. I, I mean, before we delve into your work, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about about though that time, if you will. In terms of your own consciousness about being First Nations, that was always there as part of the conversations in, in terms of your family. What were those experiences of doing sport in, the, in Timmins in general and then attending school in, mm. in Timmins? You know, my story is, I think, not unusual for people who, uh, who I know who are Indigenous. Because uh, once you start staring your, sharing your stories, you realize there's a lot of similarities, especially for people who uh, grow up off reserve uh, and are disenfranchised, you know, living in the city, trying to figure out how to be. For me, it was a uh, it was complicated because Timmins, uh, like most cities, was racist, and it was really a strong working class community, uh, you know. And there are race relations there that were obvious and some not so obvious. And um, very early on, I came to realize, you know, what that looked like in my life. Some of it was quite overt. People, you know, not giving you jobs or looking at you sideways or surveying you more closely because you're Indigenous. Um, you know, even being in school, in high school in Timmins, um, some of the decision makers in the, in, in the high school made it very clear that if you're Indigenous, you should be in either basic or intermediate because that's when they had the three levels of education. Yeah, yeah. I remember basic, intermediate, and advanced. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Made- Hard to believe that's what they labeled uh, the streaming back then. <laughs> I know, right? So um, basic uh, was uh, the trades, you know, intermediate might be college, you know, and advanced was the university stream. There were a few instances, uh, not many, but a few, and they really stuck out in my mind where teachers would say, and sometimes bluntly, that I should be in um, basic where all my Indian friends were. And and that made, you know, and that made it really hard to figure out what my life was going to be like. Uh, growing up. uh, And that was counterbalanced by having a lot of good people in my life. You know, there was a large portion of my youth where I thought uh, the best that I could hope for was to be, you know, a secretary like my mom, an administrative assistant. And um, maybe if, if that didn't work out, then I, I seriously thought I'd be serving coffee at Tim Hortons all of my life. I had friends who were around me and their parents were very supportive and, and they saw more in me than I probably saw in myself at the time. And my coach at the time, if you remember Frank Belanger, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was really good. And, you know, it was people like that who just uh, encouraged me to stay, you know, kind of on this path. And uh, even if I didn't know what I was going to do, if I didn't have that kind of clear program in life, like some of my friends did, just stay on the path, right? And let just, you know, just follow it and see where it takes you. And so that's in a nutshell, kind of what I did. Put my head down a lot because there's only so much that you can do as a youth growing up in a city like Timmins and you don't have any money and, you know, your network isn't very strong. There's only so much that you can do in terms of addressing the race relations there. And so I just, I put my head down and worked and worked and worked. Can't say I was the greatest student because I I certainly wasn't, but I did put a lot of stock in in sports because it did keep me on that path. (laughs) Did you find 
that sports was a, a space for agency. Like, and again, I, I want to come back to this in your research, but I was just wondering in, in at that time, like now, or reflecting back on it, that, I mean, it played a key factor in terms of your success and whether that was badminton or cross country running. Well, I mean, I have to say it did, and I don't want to kind of pump up the volume on, on sports so much and saying panacea for like, you know, the problems of society, because I don't believe that's yeah. true. I think, you know, from my perspective, when school was so hard and work was really hard and just life in general was really hard because people would see me as Indian and it was hard for them to wipe that away. And, uh, and, and, I, and I get that now. But because of that, sport was more like an escape for me. And it was the place where I could see something good in myself in spite of schooling or work. So had life been different, you know, in schooling and and work, I might not have put as much stock into athletics as I did. Geez, wouldn't that be nice? So so for me, sport was more of an escape. And it's not to say that racism wasn't there or ideas about race weren't there because, you know, more than enough times I had people tell me that, oh, I was a natural runner because I was Indian. And meanwhile, um, they didn't see me skipping classes because I was out running because I was too anxious to go to school and face more racism. And so, yeah. so it, it was like a, a racist space too, but it was one of the few spaces where I just, I could actually accomplish something and visibly people see it. And then they would have to acknowledge it because it was there front and center, right in front of them in, in the times and the performances, you know, in these, in these very public spaces. And, and I also knew that that might be kind of an entry point for school too, right? You know, schools wanted good athletes on their teams. And so if you didn't have the stellar grades, yeah. Um, if you were both a good athlete and a decent enough student, well, then you might get into school. Yeah. That, that context in Timmins in Northern Ontario, and, and that's why I, why I brought it up, is I was so ignorant in terms of growing up as a kid, as a citizen in Treaty 9, not knowing or not wanting to know. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of our, our conversation. And if it was, conversations are really derogatory and racist in general in terms of ca- thinking about caps casing and the, the, the social imaginary of how people referred to uh, First Nations um, community and members. And often it was like out of sight, out of mind. And when it was, it was like all these derogatory references to the media, TV shows like Westerns or in books, et cetera. So yeah, so so racist in terms of doing that. Hey though, Nicholas, I think that, you know, that was for like a yeah. lot of people too. Like, and, and I just think about myself growing up. At one point in time when we were moving around a lot and we wanted to settle down and finally we had saved up enough money to put a down payment on a house. The house that we bought was actually a boarding school house where, you know, Indigenous wow. students would live. And I'll never forget when we were going to take a look at the house and it was a real fixer-upper, right? Um, my dad and I were going into the basement and the dad, my, my father at the time, was on his way to becoming uh, kind of a, a senior leader in um, government services. And so these are the people who would go out and inspect government buildings and, you know, to make sure that they were up to code kind of thing. So it's sort of like an engineer. And yeah. we were looking um, at the house and we went into the basement and they had three rooms in the basement and there were, there were actually no windows in the basement. Like they had those little small windows, but you couldn't get through them. And they had all been like kind of nailed shut because there was so much, I guess, so much leakage. And the basement itself was just wet and damp. And three kids had been living in there. At least three kids had been living in there. And that was just the basement. And I remember thinking, and I'm not sure if I asked my dad, like, 
it was something, you know, just thinking who would live here, who would actually make people live here. And I think that was my first formal introduction to Indigenous education in Canada, you know, the history of the residential schools and what happens to kids when the residential schools shut down and they don't have a school on reserve. Well, they still have to go to the city and live somewhere, right? Um, and then that, you know, sparked a whole bunch of kind of conversations in my head about, okay, well, why are all the kids or most of the kids in the basic and intermediate stream and, and not in advanced with me and a few other people who were there? So you're not the only one, I think, who who didn't know. Even with my history and my background, I was still unaware of those things. Well, and it wasn't till 1997, I want to say. No, even later than that. 1990. Eight, uh, I was in a course with uh, Celia Head Brown in my grad studies, and we read uh, Resistance and Renewal, her book, and when, and I mean Linda Tway Smith's book on decolonizing research methodologies just came out. Right, the course that Celia was teaching was called De- Decolonizing Re- Research Methodologies. After I read Celia's mm-hmm. book, I'm like, you know, it's like the late 1990s, and I the first time we're actually discussing in an educational context the existence of the residential schooling system. And not knowing it, having grown mm-hmm. up in in the north and caps casing and that. So it wasn't until the 1990s and late 1990s, my master's, and in, in starting to talk about that and and have conversations to start questioning, like, what kind of education did you receive in school and university? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was real in terms of, of kind of trying to wake oneself up from being a zombie up there uh, and, and the kind of settler colonial consciousness. I mean, for you in in the eighties, and then and then going through high school, when you went to Western, did it was the same context, or were you able to kind of like start start anew a little bit at Western, or was it was it the same kind of relationships there when you went as an undergrad student? Yeah, I mean, and so, and that's a really interesting question. I think you know, I know every university context is different, and uh, at the time, I remember Western being very white and upper class. And so for me, I definitely went to Western thinking I could start anew and just hide my identity because I, what I would say, you know, is a white passing Indian and other people might say differently and maybe on different days when I'm taking pictures, it might seem different, but, um, (laughs) you know, not like my mother uh, at all. Like if you put us side by side, you can see the similarities um, and maybe the similarities will increase as I age, but I was younger. I could pass. And so I tried to assimilate into Western culture, the University of Western Ontario culture. And it was really difficult. Um, I think by that time, my consciousness was at the forefront of who I was. And so when I was taking courses, I would tend to gravitate towards courses that would teach me more about race relations. And when I joined the, um, not so much the badminton team, but um, the, the varsity cross country running team, that's when I saw the same sort of racism emerge and it wasn't virulent in any way like it 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 wasn't kind of a a negative kind of violent racism but it was the subtle kind of stereotyping about how I'm an Indian runner and I should be good at running it's my natural abilities which wipes away all the hard work you know that I put into running and then so I started to speak out about uh, my Indigenous heritage and that was really interesting because that's when I really saw, started to see people's perspectives on being Indigenous in Canada come out. And then people had really strong views um, about Indigenous people and their place in Canada. And that made some relationships and it broke some relationships. But no, I think um, for a while, it's just I tried to assimilate and just couldn't do it. And that's okay. It got me to where I am today. 
talking early 1990s, uh, you would have been at Western? Yeah. And yeah. yeah, yeah, I started here in 1991. Okay. And yeah. While you were there, and in terms of your own consciousness, advocating for uh, for others to to recognize who you are in the context of the historical context, and in terms of the intergenerational injustices and all the policies put in place to form nation state we call Canada. Did you see a change over time in terms of your undergrad? Mm-hmm. Or and I say change, like I'm you know I'm putting that on a spectrum because I think some things have changed, but I, as you know, like there's a lot more that needs to be done <laughs> but i'm thinking back going back to like you and i sitting around on yeah. a bench uh in a gym as teenagers wouldn't have been talking about being treaty nine citizens per se i don't know if you know teenagers are talking about yeah. that with their teachers today yeah. like i would I, I i doubt it in terms of some of the context but for your undergrad and your consciousness when did yeah. you feel that you were able to kind of focus now on your academic studies of uh, speaking and the kind of research that you wanted to do yeah. uh, in light of the, the research projects that you're currently doing. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't think I saw that change in undergrad at all. For me, it was just uh, one big, long kind of era of survival you know, and, and trying yeah. to find my way, you know, and, and I just, I remember being at Western and I remember when uh what was in kind of the Indigenous Student Services office started opening up. They had it staffed with a few people, and it was like this small room that you would go into. And And I don't think there were many Indigenous students on campus um, at that time. Uh, I certainly didn't know them because I wasn't from Southern Ontario. I was from Northern Ontario. And uh, there were just so few of us on campus. There wasn't really a community per se. And, and so the Indigenous Student Services Office was really trying to create that community. I think the challenge for me is that, as you all know, varsity sports takes a lot of time. And so I spent most of my time doing varsity sports and then studying. And so that left me very little time to create or be involved with another type of community. So on occasion, I would go to their office and just literally I would just go and sit. And it was just a space to be it without anybody asking me any questions, telling me how you know mm. unfair it was because they thought we got our taxes free. You know, what am I complaining about? We got it so good. I'm Indigenous, that kind of thing, and that there's no problems with race. And, and so I just I needed a space to stop the noise. And, and that's what that um, that's what that space was for me. And, and so that's really what my undergrad was like. It was uh, going to classes, just trying to understand race relations. Mm-hmm. I took a lot of history courses, um, mostly on the American slave South, because I was fascinated with their, that experience of race relations. And then going, going to sports and making friends and trying to be Indigenous as much as I could be in that space, and then just trying to find space to breathe. That's my whole undergrad experience. <laughs> Yeah. In a nutshell. Try to be more conscious of thinking about the students that come here. For example, the University of Ottawa, I've, I've been fortunate enough to talk to some undergrad students who've had to leave like uh, Attawapskat or Kishishwan. They go to Timmins first. And if they're lucky, they have yeah. family there. They go to school there. And then if they do well there and then come to the University of Ottawa and then passionate about, you know, studying geography in relation to their communities and place and the environment, but in order to do well, have to study Canadian perspectives in relation to a Canadian landscape and geography and the way it's taught. And so you have to sit there in that class looking at course content on the nation state formation of Canada, and you have to kind of learn it to do well. And I, I don't, 
I know we don't take that perspective seriously or think about it as professors, like non-Indigenous professors, when we're teaching or developing our courses. There's a growing number of professors like like yourself who are doing that work, and and I think that's wonderful. I mean, uh, maybe it's because I'm surrounded by people like that, but but I do think there is a growing number of people, and you know, and they want to do it better, and I think that's wonderful. I just you know sometimes I think back how fast life has changed actually and how much life has changed since my undergrad experience. And I know change can't come fast enough. I totally get that. But I also see kind of the change that has happened over the last yeah. 30 plus years now. And it's quite significant. So I'm, I'm actually pretty impressed, but, but I totally get your point. It can't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's still so much more to do. So yeah. uh, in terms of undergrad to grad school, so what led you and what were your interests and how was that? to to lead to the kind of work that you're doing now so you transitioned to graduate school and then were you able to start focusing on some of the areas that you're now contributing like significant work to in terms of the work that you're doing yeah well you know and that transition was not easy again I just I, I think about myself in undergrad and and I I, you know, I wandered through my undergrad not knowing what I wanted to do, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it was in my third year. I was one of those exceptional students who hold, held out the longest, where my counselors <laughs> can't graduate with an undeclared. <laughs> there is no undeclared. Like, you can't just go around taking whatever courses you want and not graduate with a degree in something. And for whatever reason, that didn't resonate with me. And, I, and I'm like, why not? But um, <laughs> because <laughs> why not? <laughs> Because I didn't know what I was going to do anyway. But um, so they said, look, you know, why don't we take a look at the, you know, the most courses that you have, package them together and see if there's something that makes sense. And they said, well, you really like history. And I'm like, yeah, I really do like history. And they're like, so let's get you into history. So they got me into history. But the only problem was I didn't know what I was going to do with my history degree because I'd never really shaken off the idea that I was just that I was going to be an administrative assistant or work in a coffee shop. Um, by that time, you know, the second cup had kind of emerged and I thought, oh, that would be like better than Tim Hortons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, you know, Northern Ontario kind of imagination. And so when I graduated, uh, you know, I really, and again, literally, I literally was walking the halls of Western, not knowing what I was going to do with my degree. And I know I'd applied to teaching school or teacher's college, but, um, we, again, I, I moved around so much and my partner and I had moved around so much that I'm pretty sure I didn't change my address. So if I had gotten accepted, I wouldn't have you would known. Have known. <laughs> so, so, um, on my way to badminton practice, uh, every day I would go in the underground tunnels up to alumni hall and in the underground tunnels. Uh, there is this office, uh, the Center for Olympic Studies at Western, and I had always wondered what it was. I was just fascinated by it, never gone into explore, and I thought, what the heck, what have I got to lose? And uh, wandered in, and so began my career into graduate school. So it was really by accident <laughs> that I ended up there. And I think also, um, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I still had no idea what I was wanted to do, but I thought, what have I got to lose? I love two things. I love sports, and I... I, w- I want to know more about Indigenous history and my Indigenous history in particular. Was there a way for me to merge those two, even if it didn't lead to a job? Because I think at this point for me, um, my education was more about self-exploration and trying to figure out me and my place in the world than trying to solve someone else's problem, so to speak. Yeah. And and that's really how this foray began. It was really by circumstance, just and accident. Well, I... 
uh, thoroughly uh, enjoyed reading your work. I took took the time to go through, you know, a, lo- a lot of it, and uh, there's yes. so much out there. Got uh, interviews. A couple of the magazine articles that I read were amazing, especially the one that I think you're cited in it. And I was reading it last night on on lacrosse, and I was really interested in in. I was interested in it because my three boys played competitive lacrosse for right. uh, for a bit of time, and we went and played against. Um, youth from Aquasasne and traveled, and which was amazing. Like their their um, stadium to play in, and just the parents and community were just amazing. And 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 I really appreciated reading that article in terms of thinking about what I would say from the perspective of the article troubling lacrosse and how it's been whitewashed and Europeanized and the whole process of assimilation. And I see you troubling that in your work. And like, just look in terms of what you just shared about your own experiences, you can really see that coming out in your scholarship. And first thing would be, there's there's been quite a, a few like biofictional or fictional books written about uh, the residential schooling system. I'm thinking about Indian Horse and others in terms of the role of sport. And, and what I appreciate about your work is like you, you refuse to situate mm-hmm. as being good or bad, but kind of trouble the complexity and nuances of the ways in which people use sport, like depending on who's using the sport, who, who it is, who's involved with the sport, their power relation, and what the implications are in terms of the, the, the role of sport or how it was positioned in relation to, as one context, the residential schooling system. So there's quite a quite a few pieces that you've done there. And I was wondering, like, it makes sense now you say your background, like in terms of history and sport, how you accessed or came into collaborations mm-hmm. with your co-authors to kind of look at that context and then the process of finding images. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to hear about the working with the images and then working with survivors and your participants through the images to share their stories. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think like, Maybe a lot of researchers, uh, the work that I do now stems from my own interest in kind of my early forays into research. And so early on, I parked a lot of ideas because I didn't know what to do with them at the time. And I think in some way it was uh, serendipity, like or serendipitous, the way my research history and experience with research has rolled out. So when I was first getting started um, doing my work, uh, and this is where Reclaiming Tom Longboat comes from, I was working for the Aboriginal Sports Circle, and and that's the national body for Indigenous sport in Canada. And I was working in Aquasasne, funny enough. (laughs) uh, You know, I'd bike across, I was living in Cornwall, and I'd bike across the bridge every day and go to work in the old lacrosse factory. which is where our office was. Um, And one of the program areas that I was responsible for was the Tom Longboat Awards. And I'd always known about the Tom Longboat Awards or or it seemed that way. And and so I was just enthralled. I just so excited, you know, to to be the program manager for the Tom Longboat Awards. And then I started delving into his history and just started taking a look at like, who gets to win the the Tom Longboat Award? And, And it started raising all of these questions for me. And then that led to... Uh, looking into the history of residential schools because I found out the Tom Longboat Awards were a product of Indian Affairs and, uh, you know, the the residential school system in 1951. And so you have to ask yourself, well, what was Indian Affairs' interest in, like, 
sport and why would they create the Tom Long Boat Awards? And through those experiences, like uh, uh, talking to um, Tom Long Boat Award recipients, a number of them, especially in the 1950s and 60s, sometimes the early 70s, they were coming from the residential school system. and, And that just really piqued my interest then in sports and games in residential schools. And along the way, every now and again, just with the kind of work that I do, I think it's kind of a, an area of work that we don't see so much anymore, but doing this kind of oral histories where you go to people's homes and you talk to them about their experiences. You know, my experience is that they often bring out their storybooks or their picture books or letters or memorabilia, and they, and they tell you their story. And sometimes they would bring out these amazing photos. And, and that is what led me to take a look at um, the role of photography and visual culture and the promotion of sporting culture and understanding sports and games in residential schools. So all of that kind of like began very early on. Some of it I had to park for decades even before I just I came back to it more fully than, so I could understand it better because one of the things that I'm always worried about is, and I know we, you and I both exist in this um, publish or perish environment, and you know, you're encouraged to publish your results right away in order to get something on your CV, um, or at least I was. And I thought, no, I can't do that because I'm not confident what I know. And I just something doesn't feel right about the way I'm thinking about this. And so I don't want to put something out there for it to be like another brick in the wall that I then have to take down at some point later. And I mean, I may have to do yeah. that later, but at least I'd be, I'd like to be confident yeah. <laughs> put out there and not have these real kind of nagging thoughts in the back of my head going, yeah, it's not time. That's not right. You haven't really thought this through yet. Just hold on to it for a while. That has to be difficult because the way in which your research at least from my perspective, the, the, the way in which it, it's making a difference is getting the public and your colleagues and uh, you teachers to think mm-hmm. differently about the narratives that they use to describe First Nation Métis youth in relation to sport, both historically and in terms of contemporary. And you provide examples. That's yeah. what you know, I loved about your, 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 I love about your website is that it it, it, it demonstrates the different research projects you're working on to do that, to look, examine those historical narratives, but also um, your commentary in terms of what can we learn from the past and the way in which yes. narratives were constructed or like around like the Tom Longboat Award or even in terms of newsletters uh, mm-hmm. that were, were shared by um, school leaders for the residential schooling system mm-hmm. in terms of the way in which we're framing athletes today or communities. Yeah. Yeah, and I and it's interesting because I go back to something that you said earlier, and for me, a good example of that is that good or bad kind of framing of sport for for youth, and especially for Indigenous youth or marginalized youth. And I, I've always had kind of one foot in in the public sector as well. I do a lot of volunteer work in in the sports sector, especially Indigenous sport, and you know you, you see that kind of discourse a lot, where where people speak about sport in very simplistic terms. Uh, as if sport is the panacea for for all things, right? Health and wellness and culture and identity and tourism and whatnot. Yeah. And and we see plenty of examples too where that's completely wrong. So about bloated gl- uh, claims about the Olympic Games, helping communities to revitalize their tourism or to create better economics for for the the city and the region or for sport and how it can address uh, health issues when, you know, elite sport does the opposite, that it can also overwhelm the healthcare system because elite athletes require a lot of care and attention. 
And so it's this good or bad narrative that I just talk about a lot and I explore. And you're right. I think you picked up on something like I refuse to use good or bad in my, in the way I talk about sport. When I work with students or people, I say, okay, let's try talk, not, not talking about sport, using those kind of descriptors. <laughs> the power of sport. That's such a, a common refrain. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... Well, you see it in every movie. Like it's the, the redemption, the re- redemptive nature of sport. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, right? As an academic, yeah. I'm like, okay. <laughs> So wait, one of the focuses that you and you demonstrate in some of your co-published pieces and then your the Social Science Humanities Research Council funded projects okay. is the way in which sport was used as a tool for assimilation. And so what for, for you in terms of what do you see coming out of that, that research as the key kind of policy factors that continue to have intergenerational repercussions for First Nations communities, for example, but also for like a wider, those same policies, if they're not good for certain contexts, they should not be good for all contexts in the way in which they're trying to work. So I was just wondering, what have you learned through those projects in terms of rethinking the way in which we might conceive of sport today? Yeah. And that's like one of the, the main threads of my work is talking about sport and assimilation in Indigenous contexts and, uh, you know, at least in, in the circles that I travel in, maybe not so much in, in the public, but um, it is very clear that sport was used as a tool for Indigenous assimilation. And so if you can just imagine the Europeans coming in and the British in particular and um, settler culture settling down in Canada and it's being formalized, legislation and policy and structures Uh, And the whole point of settler colonialism is to remove Indigenous peoples from the land, right? And then then take over the land for either settlement or resource extraction. And then to disassociate them from their land so they have no more connection to the land. In the time before settlers came to Canada and really started to to be a part of this uh, landscape, Indigenous people had practices, their own sporting practices, if you will, that tied them to the land, that reinforced their culture, that reinforced their language, that taught them about who they were. And sport did that. Like it was very much a part of their culture and it performed a number of different functions. When organized sport came in and when it became like the way of doing sport, it marginalized indigenous practices. And indigenous people wanted to be part of organized sport too. I mean, they've always wanted to be a part of it. They haven't always been. And when they wanted to be, they had to make concessions in order to do that. But organized sport is not about creating a relationship to the land. It's about creating a different sort of relationship to the body and to commerce. And so in a way, organized sport disassociates people, indigenous people from their lands. And And so this is how organized sport has become part of the process of colonization. And now what we see more and more is the more organized sport is accepted uncritically and the more it becomes kind of cemented in these cities uh, because you need facilities, you need specialists, you need access to travel, um, you need all of the things basically that a city can provide if you want to be an elite athlete. Like at some point, you have to move from your community to the city. So there is this ongoing kind of pressure to dispossess people from the land, to take them away from their community, to get them into the city if they want to be in sport. So one of the things that I talk about is sport, if it is to be a part of reconciliation. If it's not, then that's a different conversation. But it, if it is to be a, a part of reconciliation, that pressure needs to ease up. It needs to change. 
and sport needs to be developed in Indigenous communities or provided in different ways that doesn't speed up this process of uh, disenfranchising people from their communities of pulling them away, right? So that if they want to do sport, well, you got to leave your community um, in order to play. There's not much that we can do because like, well, here's the opportunities. You don't have them. If you want them, you've got to come here. Yeah, you wrote about that with authors. And so I want to ask you uh, maybe two two questions here, or maybe they're both the same. Uh, we were the lucky ones, three former yeah. players on a residential school hockey team recall the reality behind the snapshots of their 1951 exhibition tour and work with uh, Kelly Kelly Bull, Chris Cromartie, uh, and David Wesley, and you've included them as authors. So I was wondering, how is the process of doing that work with them to narrate their stories? And how has that informed the ways in which you might approach to work and do the kind of oral history uh, research that you do with community members? So yeah, so I'm just curious, like over time, you felt like you had to park things because you weren't, you didn't, you didn't quite feel ready or that it was right. And have you thought through um, your own kind of ethical approach to now doing this kind of work with different members of different communities? Yeah. And so, and so I'm really grateful for uh, Alexandra Giancarlo, who's now at the University of Calgary. And she started with me a number of years ago, actually just before COVID hit. Okay. And yeah. uh, so she started me with, uh, with me on that project, trying to bring their stories to light in, uh, in a more public way. But that project had started like a number of years ago. And then there were different iterations of it kind of stops and starts. Uh, Braden Dahiwi, for instance, um, who is now uh, back in New Zealand as, uh, I think, the director of Maori language uh, development. And then there's uh, uh, Fatima Baabad, who came and worked with me as um, a master's student and um, conducted some initial oral histories on that project. And what's interesting about that project is, um, you know, I referred mm-hmm. to earlier about, you know, people would bring out their photographs and and, and some of them would be really important and, and useful and, and an integral part of their story. And some are just kind of extraordinary. And in this one case, it was uh, Kelly Bull, who's a family friend of mine back in Timmins. I was over having tea one day and he'd pulled out this box of photographs that were clearly professionally taken. And, and they were just, they were just startling. And I, and some of them are absolutely bizarre. Like there's this one photograph of um, some <laughs> man in uh, a suit, probably some sort of like politician uh, standing on the steps of an official building. Not sure if it's the parliament buildings in Toronto or, or, or the parliament buildings in Ottawa or, or some sort of like important building in Toronto, but he's playing a flute. And the, the kids are standing uh, dressed in their like uh, new uniforms. Uh, these are the kids from Sioux Lookout Indian Residential School, and they're looking up at him adoringly. And he's he's like the, it's like the he's the Pied Piper, and it's really weird. Like it's so not a sporting picture, right? And and so that that got me thinking about like what is really going on in this particular case with these kids from Sioux Lookout Indian Residential School, the date, you know, is like 1951. They're on yeah. a hockey tour. What, what is really happening in this space? Even then, back then, I was wondering, like, what, what, like, what would these kids, like, think about these pictures now, right? Yeah. The challenge of working with pictures, uh, especially from so long ago, is that people don't often remember the pictures being taken, even if they have them, like, in their in their album or they might not even remember the people in the pictures right uh i mean how many pictures do you have in your photo album that you don't know who the people are (laughs) you don't know where you were but you keep it anyway because you think it's yeah 
It depends. It depends what year. I think elementary school years, I'm pretty good. Uh, there's a couple other I've study, I've, you go through, you're like, who's that person? Again? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what's really interesting about that is just, it, you know, it, it opens up a whole lot of threads and discussions about historical memory. What, like, what people remember mm-hmm. about their experiences back then and how do they remember it? I've been working with my team over the years and, and Alexandra is especially good at this. We're not sifting through these pictures for facts, though that might be part of what we get. We're sifting through their memories and making memories about how do they come to know these pictures today? Because that tells us a lot about where residential school survivors are at in terms of them understanding their sporting past in residential schools. And they don't see it as strictly good or bad. In sort of the same way that I had talked about it, it was just a mode for survival, yeah. right? And But, you know, you get sporting people who will say, oh, well, it was good for them, right? Because <laughs> that's, yeah. that's all they want to know. I'm like, look, no. look at look at, look at what it did for them. Yeah. Right? That exactly. comment, them, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> One of the things that I found in uh, my, my doctoral work, so it was uh, oral histories with elders from the United Home Nation, and I found you know, different individuals like Helen uh, Dardar-Gendrat, she, like, it didn't matter if I interviewed her alone or with another person or a group of five women, she'd share almost the same story and then they would resonate in terms of the stories. But I did find it made, it made a difference in terms of that memory work. If there was three or four women together, they could riff off each other to trigger each other's memories and the way in which they were sharing the stories. Have you found that in your own work or like, so have you done some of the oral history interviews or oral oral history interviews with individuals and together, or has it mostly been with individuals? Well, mostly with individuals, but I I understand what you're saying. Because even when you do this kind of individual story work, the stories change, you know, in each context. And so as a, as an oral historian, uh, which which is really interesting because I did study oral history at Western too, but (laughs) as an oral historian who I, I think who's, read widely on this topic. I know that if, if I create a transcript of someone's story, it's their story for that moment in time. If I, yeah. if I were right, if I were to go back, you know, go to see them a year later and ask them the same questions, I might get a different story. And that isn't unusual. Uh, people who've been doing histories of genocide, for instance, people who work with genocide, survivors of genocide, who do that kind of oral history work experience the same sort of thing. And there's really interesting works around how people tell stories to different audiences, depending on their context. And that, so that goes to show kind of how intelligent and how nuanced they are as, as storytellers. Now, I think it's different when they do like a keynote, because sometimes you get people who do these th- things for commercial reasons and they do kind of repeat the, the same repeated story. But if, yeah. if you're doing oral history work, uh, you get different stories depending on the context because they might remember things differently. They might have learned something different from the news. They might have learned something from family or they might have read something that just gets them thinking differently about something. And it just it goes to show, I think what the, this work shows, though, like oral history work is where people are at in a moment in time in terms of their understanding of something. And if, if people think that I do oral history work and that I've got the facts of history and that the facts will never change and, and that the story will never change. And it's like, well, actually, that's not true. The facts are one thing, but what people make of those facts and how they tell their story later on is very different. 
And so then that brings me back to the box of photographs, you know, that my, uh, that Kelly Bull pulled out, that my family friend pulled out that were just extraordinary. He would never speak directly to the photographs. He would tell stories about them and the stories would change each time. And so at some point in time, you've got to try and figure out like, what is he trying to say? You know, how are these photographs shaping his understanding of assimilation and what Indigenous people need to do today? Like, if we're going to address his sporting experience, where do we start? And so, for instance, yeah. for him, and I never would have expected this, but he would talk about the doctrine of discovery. I never would have made it <laughs> on my own. And I'll never forget the day that I was sitting there and Alexandra was there too. And I think, you know, she heard something differently as well, but I was stunned. I, I was just sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, I am so not ready for this interview if you're talking about the doctrine of discovery. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, a, I haven't done my homework. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like one of these boys from like standing on the steps looking up at the pipeline for have to do with the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, but there he is. He's, he's, you know, he knows there's a relationship or head in his heart. He knows there's a relationship. And yeah. and that's the story that he's, he's trying to tell. And so, and that's uh, kind of the biggest last point where we ended off. And that's the point that we're, one of the points that we're running with in the story that we're telling about them. Well, you can see that coming through again in your work about troubling different methodologies, looking at or whether it's oral history or troubling the way in which we might understand the history of sport through a quantitative lens, like often uh, reducing like an athlete to st statistics or uh, like a quantitative analysis of their their biomechanics, for example. And and that yeah. um, that we miss out on, uh, as you say, the, the the social history and the way in which, as you yeah. point out, for example, trying their understanding of their ex lived experience with that social history, which changes as we change, of course. And as you said, like, look, uh, if anyone wants to say that's not the facts, no one agrees on the facts today. Anyways, we see that going on in the United States right now <laughs> in terms of it doesn't yeah. matter what the facts are. If you can spin it whatever way you want, <laughs> it, 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 it tries to persuade uh, different people. And that's the same here uh, in Canada. Yeah. I wanted just before I, uh, I know we're nearing the, the end of our conversation. I could talk to you for a lot longer, Janice, but, uh, now in terms of your support and advocacy for, uh, indigenous games, how has the research that you've done now informed, uh, your engagement, whether that's with physical and health education Canada, I, I saw that you were a keynote and had a lifetime achievement award but also your work uh, supporting Indigenous youth yeah. and athletes. It, what do you notice now? I know that I have friends from Kitigan Zibi and some of their kids, teenagers have gone to those games. And so it's a big deal. And it's, and again, it's yeah. not, it's like to go to those games, you know, they're doing fundraising, they're getting family, friends, try to support to be able to send their kids to participate in uh, those games. It's not like Canada has a fund supporting, adequately supporting yeah. uh, athletes to be able to go to those games. Yeah, and I think for me, the work that I do comes kind of in a different way. So I'm not on the ground doing that fundraising and I'm not ground organizing events, although sometimes I am not so much anymore. Um, but I think uh, it's taken me a long time to get to yeah. this point in spot, to get to this point, to understand Indigenous sport and its relationship to colonialism and settler colonialism and we can call decolonization or reconciliation and a lot and in my experience you know there are a growing number of people who are genuinely interested in trying to figure out how do we do that right like how, how do we do that and I have to think like if it's taken me this long to get there <laughs> and you're just starting to ask now like we've, we've got a lot of learning to do and I can I can appreciate yeah. how complicated it is for them because a lot of these people are also working right in sport 
And so it's hard for them to pull themselves outside of sport because it's like many things, it's, it's such an insular culture yeah. where they're bombarded with that, the power of sport message every day. And we got to bring more sport to the masses. We got to help the indigenous people. And, you know, I'm the person who gets them to stop and say, are you sure what you're doing is, is really helpful because of X, Y, and Z? And so I do spend a lot of time just um, talking to people, mm. uh, trying to create a, almost like a manual, a decolonization manual for sports to help them to walk them through that process so that they can check themselves at certain moments in time and to think through their own thinking about sport. And, and so it's not checking themselves in terms of like, do we have Indigenous people at the table? The, the basic check marks for like EDI yeah. is, it's like, it's like they check you you want them to go beyond a checklist like if we just Absolutely. if we just put this formula in place we're good to go we got, <laughs> we're doing it in a good way Absolutely. <laughs> any, any 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 indigenous person at the table will do and, <laughs> uh, and and that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the way they think about sport right and so yeah. that's when we have these deep conversations and ophia the ontario physical education health and education association was i thought just so unique. They actually invited me to the table for like a year before I, I joined on as a director and to, to go through kind of a reconciliation process where I was just working with them, like in their senior leaders to walk through, like, how do we understand the TRC? Like, how do we understand sport and reconciliation? Mm. How do we understand reconciliation and physical education? So their basic question is like, what are we reconciling? Really, what are we reconciling? And so once you can begin to unpack that, then you're in a much better place to do something meaningful. And so that's my job. That's what I see as my job is getting people to that place where they can think through those things. People think they can bring me on and approve their checklist. And it's like, no, I don't do that. And that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking. We about have, we have Janice on the committee committee. We're good to go. <laughs> you know it's all approved. Check. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there who are indigenous or part of the EDI community, you know, will have experienced that too. But for me, it's really just, it's about the deep thinking of sport. And so people are genuinely interested in doing reconciliation and they want to do the deep thinking that's involved. And I'll put my hand up and say, yeah, call on me anytime. But that's where that's what I see my role as. And so now you're you've gone from Western University to the University of British Columbia. I'm sure Western they're like oh, the, the huge loss for them, and they're so happy at UBC. What's your your as you transition now to UBC and to other First Nations traditional territories? What's your what's your focus in terms of projects? that you continue to work on and, and what would you yeah. like to work on next? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have to say that UBC was really, whoa, they were really innovative in creating the, um, like a real, like a formal position in indigenous land-based physical culture and wellness. And, um, I didn't think it was a real position when I first saw the job ad. I thought a friend was <laughs> and they made it up. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who does this? But you know, it shows how serious they are as an institution about hiring someone who can fill that role and, and create that kind of change in terms of how people think and the structures that support that thinking. So for me, I, I still want to continue the work on residential schools. I think it's always going to be part of what I do, especially in terms of how Frank Kelly was thinking about it with the doctrine of discovery, the, the dispossession, you know, of people and the erasure of indigenous people through sport, whether it's through pictures or other forms or other discourses. 
The other thing that I am really intent on doing now and that seems to be picking up some steam is, you know, what you said earlier about how you reduce athletes to statistics. And so I'm working with Taylor McKee at Brock and the Manitoba Aboriginal Sport and Recreation Council and potentially iSpark, which is the Indigenous Sport Body for BC, to do um, Indigenous statistics for hockey and for sport. So if we are going to change the statistical picture for Indigenous sport, what does it look like? What, what sorts of questions do we want to ask to get people yeah. to understand our athletes differently? Because we know that statistics creates pictures in people's minds about who, you know what that population is and what they can do and what kind of supports they need. And so I want to create a different statistical picture, working with partners in sport to do that. And then the other is one of my dreams is to do kind of oral histories with like in indigenous languages. So ask people who are language speakers to talk about what an athlete means in their language, because I know it means something different. And I think in doing that, then we can get, we can dig more deeply into what indigenous people think sport is and what they think athletes are in terms of their cultural value to their society. So I, that's a dream of mine. Oh, I can't wait to read that work because the epistemological and ontological differences related to land and language and naming, the meanings would just be so radically different. <laughs> but it's my sense in the li- yeah. limited knowledge that I have of Anishinaabe Moen and, and just speaking to colleagues like uh, Dwayne Donald. Yeah, and I would agree. And again, just briefly, the, the impetus behind that project was a couple of years ago, I was talking to... Uh, Joe Keeper, uh, son of Joe Keeper, uh, the famous Olympian. And I was talking to him on Zoom and he's no longer here, but he told me a story about his father, Joe Keeper. And I said, like, Joe, <laughs> what does an athlete mean to you in Cree? He speaks Cree or he spoke Cree. And he's, he just he stopped for a minute and said, oh, 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 I've never had to think about that. Let me think about it for a minute. And then he said, the best that I can come up with is someone who is self-centered. And we just both kind of looked at each other across on Zoom. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Um, and I don't know what to do with that right now um, because we put so much, we, Indigenous people, put so much stock in our athletes to help pave the way forward or to be healthy through that system. And I don't know what to do with that. So that was the impetus for that thinking. Wow. Well, Janice, thank you so much. Again, I can't wait to see what you do next. And I really appreciated it. Uh, you sharing today to speak with me and your work and i hope to follow up in the future and i wish you were transitioning to the start of the year and i know you're you're traveling around and you're going to be heading back to uh, ubc vancouver I, bob lives in vancouver i know you know bob and so hopefully the next time i'm out there yeah. we can arrange maybe go for lunch and visit oh that would be amazing thanks so much Nicholas. thank you